Hello, I'm Allison Kulo. Welcome to Mountain Money. By April of 2023, Marvel Studios had made 31 feature films with a worldwide gross of over $28 billion. Considered as a whole, that output was easily the most successful film series of all time. In MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios' Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards seek to uncover the MCU while telling missing stories as part of the most thorough, authoritative history of Marvel Studios to date. Joanna Robinson, one of the authors, joins us today to share what she and her co-authors uncovered. Joanna, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin. Why did you write the book and how long did it take you to write it? And this was our this is our COVID pandemic project. We um, we started this five years ago, thereabouts, uh, right about when Avengers Endgame, the little uh, indie you might have heard of, came out in cinemas. And uh, our publisher reached out to us, Norton, our great publisher, and said, right around the same time Game of Thrones was ending, and they asked me if I wanted to write a book about Game of Thrones, and I said, no, thank you, too soon, no. And then they said, well, how about this Marvel thing? Have you heard anything about this? And uh, so, yeah, we got we got to work, and it was a really interesting, long, drawn-out process because the parent company of Marvel, Disney, did not, at the end of the day, really want us to write the book. So it took us a long time to get, you know, the over 100 interviews that we got for the book to try to make sure we told the full story. Well, Joanna, in 1957, the superhero market was dominated by DC Comics, and that's home to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. So how did Marvel Comics Group break into the market, and what did they bring to the table that was different? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think something that Marvel has always been known for is this really the heart of their characters, the warmth of their characters. You start with a couple iconic comic book creations like X-Men or Fantastic Four, and these are stories about found family, about feeling like an outsider and finding connection. And I love Superman and Batman and all the things that DC has to offer, but Marvel brought something else to the table I think a lot of people were craving, which is this idea of connection and belonging. So Marvel or Marvel Comics got their start in 1961. A lot of people are familiar with Stan uh, Lee. I want to kind of jump through a little bit of the history because we are moving a lot into the book, which is more Marvel Studios, not necessarily the Marvel Comics. But right. if you wouldn't mind just giving kind of the listeners a, enough of a foundation so that we can launch from there into the conversation about the studios. Yeah, you know, the idea of comic book popularity has ebbed and flowed over the years. And I think a couple significant things to hit before we get into Iron Man and all the movies that people might be more familiar with are that uh, Stan Lee went to Hollywood in the 70s and really tried to make Marvel Comics happen in Hollywood in the 70s and did not really succeed. A couple things got through. People might remember the Hulk live-action TV series with David Banner. Um, there was a spy, you know, Spider-Man project here or there. But for the most part, people in Hollywood in the 70s were not interested in what Stanley was shopping. And then in the 90s, you have this massive collapse of the comic book industry. There was this huge boom in the 80s. 
Batmania happened because Tim Burton made a Batman movie. All this stuff was going on. But in the 90s, there was this big collapse, and Marvel Comics actually went bankrupt. And they were saved from bankruptcy by a, a toy maker named Ike Perlmutter. And that comes in to play a big part in the shape of the movies that launched in 2008 because this idea of, A, anxiety over surviving a bankruptcy – and B, this idea of making movies as almost toy commercials comes from the top down from someone who has this mind of a toy maker. Well, in the beginning, the book says that Marvel Studios did not make films. So how did it make money? Was it all based around these toys and the basically very expensive advertisements? I don't want to get like too weedy about Marvel, but I should say that Marvel Studios, which launches to make uh, movies, is different from Marvel Entertainment, and Marvel Entertainment, sort of more of a parent company of Marvel Studios, was making things like people, kids in the 90s might remember X-Men, the animated series. Um, I was a big fan of that in the 90s. Uh, and then also a major thing that they did for a while was license out their characters to other studios to make so you get things like spider-man goes to sony hulk goes to universal um their fantastic four goes to fox like x-men go to fox they're they're selling off their characters to these other studios part of their desire you know their attempt to get out of bankruptcy but they're not making their own movies they just have to sort of sit back or sit on their hands while these other studios make an x-men movie make a sony movie they get Marvel still gets profits. They still make money off the merchandise, off those toys, but they're not in control. And that's a real major part of the story is when Marvel took control of its own films and when they launched this studio to make Iron Man in 2008. So, again, Marvel's got this great catalog of characters and the stories that go behind them. They have a fan base already. But yeah. as Marvel Studios in the beginning, they didn't make films. But once they had some change changeover in the board, you know, there was an understanding that you can make films, but here's the catch. We don't want any of our money up um, for collateral, right? Like they didn't want that type of um, risk involved. So from my understanding, they go and they, they sweet talk Merrill Lynch to loan oh, them yeah. $525 million in order to launch their first kind of uh, first few films out of the studios themselves. The Maryland Steel is one of my favorite stories in the book because the idea to make a Marvel should make its own movies comes from a man named David Maisel, who doesn't get a lot of credit in the formation of the MCU, but I definitely think he should. He had a sit down with this toy maker, Ike Perlmutter at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, Donald Trump was somewhere in the background. Um, and he says, why are you leaving money on the table? Why don't we just make our own movies? Then we get all the movie profits and all the toy profits at the same time. And as he said, Ike says, sure, sure, go make your movies. I'm not giving you a thin dime to make one. Um, again, there's that like sort of we just got out of bankruptcy mentality. And so... David Maisel and some lawyers go around to many, many different banks and get turned down. And finally, they go sweet talk Merrill Lynch into this deal. And as collateral for that $525 million, they put up some of their characters like Iron Man, you might have heard of him, Captain America, you might have heard of him, Thor, you might have heard of him, all these comic book characters that they would have lost 
the rights to to Merrill Lynch if they didn't pay back the five hundred twenty five million in the first four films that they made. So they had four at bats to pay back five hundred twenty five million, and they somehow sweet talked. Uh, this deal is so wild to me because David Maisel and his team had to convince Merrill Lynch that these superheroes who weren't actually very popular superheroes at the time. Iron Man was made popular by Robert Downey Jr. in that movie, et cetera. These were sort of the B-listers. They had already sold off the A-team, meaning Spider-Man, X-Men, et cetera. So they had convinced Merrill Lynch that these uh, B-list players were worth $525 million, while also convincing Marvel not to worry about risking these characters. So undervalue those characters to Marvel, overvalue them to Merrill Lynch. But as it turns out, it wasn't an overvaluation because eventually Marvel Studios makes billions off of these characters. Well, it's so funny to think of Iron Man as a B level character. Well, and then John Favreau came in and now he's synonymous with the Marvel franchise. I mean, he's just got his fingers in everything. What was it about Favreau's experience that landed him on the map to actually direct Iron Man and turn it into the multi-million dollar success that it was? What I love about them hiring Favreau is that, you know, John Favreau comes from the world of independent cinema and he had made a few studio movies and the one that actually got him this job was the Will Ferrell holiday movie Elf. And the reason Elf got John Favreau hired at Marvel is they initially wanted him to do a Captain America movie. And Captain America has that sort of wide-eyed innocence in a cynical world storytelling. If you think about Steve Rogers just like sort of walking around trying to think the best of people. And that's very much what Will Ferrell is doing in Elf. So you can sort of see the connective tissue there. But they decided to go first with Iron Man, mainly because Iron Man toys tested well with children when they decided which characters to go with first being the toy makers that they were they brought children in to play with various toys and the kids that they had never heard of iron man loved the iron man toy so they go with iron man first so favreau becomes an iron man director not a captain america director and what's even wilder to me if you if you want to dig into the favreau film like filmology and how it inspires marvel is he made this little movie called Zathora that nobody ever talks about. It was like a sequel to Jumanji. And he brought so many people who worked on Zathora over to Marvel and they stayed. So Louis DeCesito, who's the second tier uh, in charge of Marvel right now, was a producer on Zathora. A lot of the production design team, like it's just, that is a odd little movie that serves as one of the building blocks for Marvel's future. I think it's so as you mentioned before too it's like you know they they reached out to people who now are names that are kind of everyday household names but in in those times you know the early 2000s um you're looking at more of these b-list actors and one of these actors was robert downey jr was there any concern seeing he had an almost perfect record of commercial failure failure as well as a well publicized reputation as a drug user was he really the right choice when you've got four at-bats with $525 million at stake? I mean, I think you have to say in in retrospect, absolutely right. he's the in right retrospect. choice. Like, it's one of the best casting decisions of all time. But um, I, you're right to point out that 
Downey was, um, you know, he was he was several years clean at that point, but still sort of um, working under the shadow of some of the scandal that happened around that time when he was having when he was struggling, and he was making movies that had a lot of critical or cult acclaim, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a huge favorite, um, but he wasn't making blockbusters at the time. So one of my favorite quotes that we have in the book is one of the folks who was working at Marvel says, yeah, we looked at a bunch of different actors. Some of my favorite actors, side note for me, Joanna, like Timothy Oliphant, some of my faves of all time auditioned here. Um, but they said, we looked at a bunch of different actors and then Tony Stark walked in, and by that he means Robert Downey Jr. walked in, and they're like, this is just the guy. So yeah, they had to really convince a skittish Marvel board that this is the guy to go with, and eventually they they just had to put him on tape. They just had to film scenes with him and show those uh, screen tests to the Marvel board, and that's what got, you know, convinced them. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that it was a huge risk at the time, but I think especially when we look at what is going on with Marvel since Robert Downey Jr. has left the franchise post Avengers Endgame, you really better understand how he and his flair and his style were essentially the spine holding up this studio for a very long time. Well, another thing that Marvel has really honed in on is the idea of that post-credit scenes and keep people in the theater. You want to see what's going to happen. Is it going to be bloopers? Is it going to be something funny? But I didn't realize that this inspiration was from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, I admit it's yeah. been a long time since I've seen Ferris Bueller's, but what has this really done and how powerful has this been for the Marvel franchise? Yeah, I love, so that first post-credits sequence where Samuel L. Jackson shows up as Nick Fury with the eye patch and says something about the Avengers initiative was initially meant as just like a little Easter egg treat for hardcore comic book fans because they didn't know at that point how invested people would get in these superhero movies. And they said, well, let's, let's give one to the comic book fans. They know who Nick Fury is, even though the film going audience don't. So we'll just put him up there and it'll be a little, a little joke for them. And that weekend, Kevin Feige, head of Marvel Studios, loves to tell his story about how that weekend, Entertainment Weekly had a big explainer about who is Nick Fury? What does this mean for the future? Like, it already started, like, as soon as Iron Man opened. And they said, oh, okay, we've got something here. So they added something to the end of Hulk, and on and on it goes. And I, I love that Ferris Bueller is an inspiration. It's a really fun um, way to understand the way that Kevin Feige, the head of Marvel Studios, is a is an 80s blockbuster guy. He's not a comic book guy. He loves films. And so he loves Spielberg and he loves Lucas and he loves all of that. And so he's chasing those movies that he loved when he was a kid in the 80s and the, and the 70s going to the Cineplex. And so I love that Matthew Broderick in his bathrobe at the end of Ferris Bueller inspired this, uh, this great Marvel tradition. One of, obviously, the big storylines in the book is Disney's acquisition of Marvel Studios, which took place in 2009. I know we could spend the rest of this interview just talking about this, but I'd like to keep it more as a highlight. Can you talk about what these two companies, what made these two companies an excellent match? Yeah, that's such, it's such a great question. I mean, $4 billion. This is the thing is, Iron Man comes out in 2008. Marvel, David Maisel and et cetera, had gone around hat in hand begging for Merrill Lynch, et cetera, begging for money 
Iron Man comes out in 2008. By 2009, they have $4 billion from Disney and the Disney deal. It's just astonishing. Um, and what's important to remember about Disney at the time is that Bob Iger, then and now head of, of Disney, was looking to expand the portfolio that Disney had of their assets. So they were known for decades and decades and decades as the princess people, right? You like all your young girls love Disney because this is where the cute animals and the princesses are. I don't always love to think of these terms, these, these concepts and such, yes. you know, uh, limited gendered terms. That's certainly how Disney was thinking about it. And they thought we need to get young men and older people into our brand. We don't want Disney to feel like a kiddie brand anymore or just for, you know, young girls. We want uh, young boys and we want everyone. And so they went after Pixar and they acquired Pixar and they went after Lucasfilm and they acquired Lucasfilm. So they got the Jedis from Lucasfilm and Indiana Jones, et cetera. And then they went after Marvel and got the superheroes from Marvel. And so then they have this much rounder portfolio of the kinds of stories that they feel like they can tell. Well, with the stories that they tell and the movies they produce, they sign these actors to typically nine movie contracts. That's a lot of movies. I mean, the consistency is great as a viewer, but how has this helped the franchise? What I love about that is that it's, it sounds so startling to modern ideas of how Hollywood works. But what it is really is a throwback to the old studio system uh, in Hollywood in the 1930s. Um, and there are many ways in which Marvel Studios, which is considered this sort of disruptor and almost like Silicon Valley-esque disruptor, but it's remarkable how many lessons they actually just lifted and will admit it, admit that they lifted from the old studio system. So this idea of bringing designers in-house um, having a writer's program, all these things that they bring in-house, they took those lessons from uh, Hollywood past. And locking in an actor for a nine-film contract is a very old Hollywood thing to do. And, uh, you know, it means that someone like Chris Evans was trepidatious to sign his contract to play Captain America because he's like, nine films? I don't even know where I'm going to be in nine films from now. Why would I do that? Um, and so he hemmed and hawed for a really long time, uh, and they finally locked him in. So I think another thing has you know, a reason that they do it, obviously, is money, because when they hired Downey, he worked for pennies on the dollar, which were $500,000 for the first Iron Man movie. But they only locked him in for one movie, and it did such, you know, such a smash hole of success that they then had to pay him reportedly $10 million for the second Iron Man movie, plus a hefty percentage of the back end. And so that leap for Downey is something that they wanted to avoid in the future. And so they locked in these actors like Chris Evans, like Chris Hemsworth, who were not very well known. And so they could lock them in for less money and then lock them in for a long time and, and see how that goes. There were some renegotiations over the years. Once, you know, Avengers starts making a, over a billion dollars every time an Avengers movie comes out. But I think that idea of locking uh, and making stars out of their actors rather than hiring stars. There's so much within this book. It's a thick book. It's well written that I wish I could go into such as kind of, you know, how the Marvel's writing writer program works. Um, talk about how Marvel Studios is described more like a tech startup than a traditional studio. 
and how many people feel Guardians of the Galaxy is seen as one of the best Marvel movies, but I'm not going to go there because for our last question, I just want to talk a little bit about how they're starting to really, you know, continue to push boundaries and have you discuss the cultural significance of both Black Panther and Captain America. Yeah, no, I, 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 this story of the MCU that we tell in the book here from pre-Iron Man to, you know, basically we, we finished tweaking it a couple months ago, essentially, um, is a story of control where Marvel Entertainment, the East Coast contingent, those folks that didn't want to give one thin dime to an Iron Man movie, et cetera, they were calling a lot of the shots on who could be in these movies, what these heroes could look like. Speaking from a fearful, we went bankrupt, we want to sell toys point of view, they're, in their opinion, the superheroes should be young white men named Chris, essentially, <laughs> and, and um, not women and not people of color because in their eyes, those characters don't uh, sell toys. And so Kevin Feige, head of Marvel Studios, uh, had a many, uh, like a decade-long battle to try to push the envelope on representation and this idea of who gets to be a hero, which I just think is a really important... People can care about Marvel Studios or not. I, I'm not here to convince anyone that they need to love a Marvel movie, especially not right now when Marvel's struggling a little bit. But what's undeniably true is that for over a decade, it had a huge impact and influence on a generation, if not generations, of filmgoers and story lovers. And so it is really important when you are that influential to bear in, like, to to welcome everyone into this idea of, what a hero can be. And so the fact that we get Black Panther and now um, we have Anthony Mackie playing Captain America, we have the Marvels, which I thought was a perfectly lovely film, is, you know, the movie, the Marvel movie that has made the least money and that is devastating, but it stars three women, uh, two of which are women of color. And that ma it matters to the young people seeing these movies to anyone seeing these movies that really anyone can in the words of Stanley anyone can wear the mask well we have had a lovely conversation with Joanna Robinson she is one of the authors of MCU the reign of Marvel Studios Joanna thank you so much for joining us on Mount Money this morning thanks for having me Over the course of this year, several analysts have reported that online retailers are coming down off of their peak sales seen during the pandemic. So what does this mean to the supply chain and shopping, shopping habits going into the busy 2023 holiday shopping season? Chris Tang, a professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management, joins us this morning to give us an overview of current supply chain issues and how they may be impacting your holiday shopping this year. Chris, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, let's begin. Let's let's start with just a general overview. I, I don't recall hearing a lot this year about supply chain issues as we have in the past with shipping containers being stuck in ports. What types of products and what types of supply chain issues have we seen this year? Well, this year, I think that the chips still have, are really in short supply and we do have a limited uh, of EV batteries, uh, but 
Uh, well, after years of COVID, and I think that a lot of retailers, they have overstock of many products, such as electronics and toys. So therefore, we have a different type of supply chain issues. Actually, we have more products to be sold. Um, well, Chris, so much of the shipping goes through the Panama Canal, such a central artery for um, supply chain distribution. But there's a drought happening in the P Panama Canal. So what is the long-term outlook, outlook, and do they have a backup plan? Uh, that's a good question. This year, there was a serious drought in the Panama uh, Canal area. So therefore, there's actually the, uh, the, the big boat cannot get through because the water level is too low. So as a result, they can only ship smaller ships. So therefore, that means that, uh, that not many ships can go through and also that would be a long delay. So the delay has been around maybe seven to 10 days. So therefore, a lot of companies, they need to rethink how about shipping uh, products through the canal to, uh, to Texas, to the Gulf, and also to the East Coast. So as a backup plan, some of the companies now, they're shipping through the East Coast. So that means that if uh, products from uh, China or Vietnam, uh, they may have to ship through the Suez Canal. And I think that so far, the, 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 uh, the shipments through the Suez Canal is still going through quite smoothly. So through the Suez Canal, they can go through the Mediterranean Sea and then go to the East Coast. I think we're, we're continuing to realize how fragile this ecosystem of our supply chain is, because just a few years ago, there was an issue in the Suez Canal. So really, it's, it's these two areas that we, we rely on heavily in order for this to go smoothly. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So right now, I think that in terms of uh, the, uh, the West Coast, we had a long congestions uh, two years ago in 2021. And now we have the Panama Canal and also the East Coast, the Suez Canal also was blocked. Uh, three years ago. So therefore, I think that this is why uh, President Biden is thinking about how to reshore or nearshore some of the products through the Mexico area or actually uh, in increase the domestic production. Mm. So shipment channels are obviously a, a link that can be easily broken. But you also talk about how cybersecurity is quite possibly the weakest link with regards to supply chains. Tell us more about that. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think that's, a, well, we know that even in the U.S., some crazy people, they are attacking some of the infrastructure of the energy station. Uh, and also that I think cyber attack is another uh, vulnerable area that the U.S. need to pay close attention to. Uh, just this month in China, ICBC, the bank, was actually uh, attacked by the ransomware and they have to really pay the ransom uh, ransom to actually get the operation set up. So knowing that our, all our transportation and the supply chain uh, operations heavily involved of all these IT support. If our IT system being attacked, that could create a major problem. So understanding the supply chain a little bit better right now, I want to go back to what we mentioned in our introduction, and that is more shoppers are returning to shopping in person. And I know it's so quick and, and we're happily ready to forget what happened during the pandemic, but can you remind us of how we had been shopping since 2020 and how that disrupted the system before the pandemic? 
Yes, well, as we may recall, in 2020, during COVID, the lockdown, so a lot of people work from home. So therefore, the products we buy, uh, we're purchasing were different because we need a home uh, office uh, equipment. We need uh, toilet paper for home use. We need a lot of hand sanitizer. So that triggered a lot of uh, product shortages. So at that time, because of lockdown, some of the stores are closed, and then we shop online primarily. But now I think that the stores are opening up and people feel more comfortable going shopping. So I think that it's a shift in terms of uh, buying product online and also buying products uh, in store as well. But besides the product, we have to keep in mind, uh, during COVID, we cannot travel, we cannot go to restaurants. Uh, so therefore, most we purchase mostly uh, products. We spend our money on products. But now things are opening up. People are tired of just using products. They want to have some, some kind of uh, experience. So therefore, services now is booming, like restaurants, uh, in terms of hotel, travel, airlines, as you see on, uh, on TV this Thanksgiving, we booked a new record on t- in terms of air travel. So what kind of signals are you really seeing that suggest online retailers are coming down off of their peak sales during the pandemic? I mean, it's, we are obviously changing our shopping habits, but what is really showing you these changes? Well, this year, as I just reported yesterday, I think that in terms of in-store shopping, is that in terms of revenue, is going up around around 2.5%. Now, the online shopping is not exactly coming down per se. A lot of people are still actually shopping online. So there is close to 8 to 10% increase in terms of sales online. Now, so the reason is that is, uh, well, it may not be an issue in, the, in Utah, but in California, we do have uh, quite a few cases of smash and grab. So a lot of people may not feel comfortable going to the store to shop. I, I personally, I, I rarely go to the store myself because I'm just a little bit weary about that. No, I, I do think there's a, a lot of other factors that are contributing to people's weary, you know, uh, hesitation of gathering in, in large groups and, and things like that as well. I, I start, as you had said, it's not that uh, online shopping is decreasing. We're just seeing an increase in in in-person shopping, but I want to just look a little bit into it. Last week, Forbes.com headlined an article saying holiday shoppers may be leaving Black Friday and Cyber Monday behind. All of us have been receiving, I think, cyber deals since Halloween. You know, are are these deals no longer luring shoppers, or is it more of the convenience of online shopping that keeps that that, uh, pipeline going? Well, this year we're in luck because a lot of retailers have tons of inventories. So because they need to get rid of the inventory, so they can no longer waiting until the Black Friday or Cyber Monday to give you the deals. So therefore this year, actually a lot of retailers start promoting and discounting the product way before the Black Friday. So that's why they call the Black November. Mm. So the entire month, you get good deals. So they like right now, like toys, like electronics, they, they uh, you get excellent deals. Uh, and also some of the perils. So because there's excessive inventory, so if they cannot get rid of it during this holiday season, they have to sell through uh, outlet mall. 
right? So therefore, I think that right now, I think that you still get a lot of good deals. You don't need to rush to the store, and you get a lot of good deals even online as well. So therefore, I think that the shopping habit has changed this year because people they don't need to wait until these two special days to get good deals. Well, I remember when shipping lanes started opening up again and the backlog of ships in the L.A. ports and then, you know, the backlog of orders of whether it's electronics or clothes or shoes, everybody pre-ordered everything, assuming that the sales would keep going. But it seems like now there's got to be a massive just overabundance of products that these companies have ordered and whether they're sitting in their warehouses or on a ship somewhere, what is the long-term plan for these online retailers to get rid of all of this excess inventory aside from, you know, the random online sale? Well, I think some of the retailers will be uh, in uh, trouble because they overorder. Uh, bear in mind, during COVID, everyone uh, wants more stuff, they buy stuff, and also consumers have more money because we have the, uh, the re- relief uh, checks uh, from the government. But now I think the shoppers, they are running out of money so they don't have that much money to shop. And also they, they, they are, have enough stuff in the house. So therefore, they are not really that panicky to buy more stuff. And also they, because inflation, people are a bit worried about uh, the price keep going up because of food. That's something they need. So for, I think for the uh, appliances and also in terms of some apparels, they can wait a little bit. So therefore, I think that that's why the, the retailers, they are really panicky, try to get rid of this excessive inventory. So that's why the, I think that this year, uh, the consumers are in luck. They get a lot of good deals. Uh, but I think that in terms of online shopping, so I think that they may need to rely on other form of shopping right now a lot of stores they also offer uh, buy now and pay later they help you to buy it now and uh, and then you pay by installments because uh, the credit card debt is going up a lot and also consumer may not have that much cash to buy so now they try to lure this consumer say hey you buy it now and then you pay by installments and pay later I've seen that a lot. And remember, that's not layaway. Layaway, you couldn't get the product until you paid the entire price, which is different. (laughs) Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the return to brick and mortar, because no doubt when you change systems, you find efficiencies, you develop new technology, you find a better way of doing things. With more people returning to brick and mortar, are there some new disruptors into the old system that either we can look forward to or that are going to cause some issues? Well, there are new stuff. I think that this is more for the younger people. Uh, so this is called social commerce. So we already know that in terms of brick and mortar, you go to shop in the store, and also e-commerce, you order online. But the new generations, now they don't do that anymore. They get find it boring. So they want social commerce. That means that they are some live streaming, they're on the mobile phone, they see the social influencers to uh, introduce the product and explain how the product is being used, and then they can actually shop it on the online platform, on the social platform, such as uh, TikTok. You know, a lot of young people, they use TikTok or uh, using uh, uh, YouTube and some other uh, Pinterest. So actually, they can shop even by the mobile phone as well. So a lot of these companies that are, you know, reopening and businesses building up, I'm thinking of The Gap. They've been around for 40 or 50 years. Nordstrom, some of these, you know, long-established stores. How will they keep up with these new social platforms? Do they hire consulting companies? I mean, what... How do they? How will they shift their marketing? 
Uh, right now, I think all the stores have no choice. So they do have in-store presence. They also have online presence. And now also some of them, they even have the social uh, commerce presence, such as H&M. They use social media to actually you do, even do the catwalk to show you how the clothes look on the model. Uh, then also Nike, they're also using that. And also Clinique, uh, the cosmetics, they also have live streaming to show you how the certain products being used, how it's applied. So I think that actually are now a lot of uh, retailers and brands, they actually need to have an additional channels as well because the younger generations they don't go to the store they don't shop online so they rely on the friends and also those social influencers as their friends to introduce new product to them so i think that is one element the other element even for cars now amazon is going to sell uh the first line the car hyundai uh on amazon platform so in the future you don't need to go to car dealers to buy cars you can take actually order your car from amazon is it fair to say that as we look at changes to the retail environment and as this younger generation grows up and new generations follow, that there's going to be less of a need to touch and feel a product prior to purchasing? Uh, it depends. I think that actually some of the products, younger people still like to do the touch and feel. So now some of the uh, newer brands and newer stores, they use a different uh, 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 strategy they call a pop-up tent event so for example for uh, some, one of the chinese uh, retailers growing very rapidly Shein. so they have the pop-up tent pop-up event so they make a shopping as experience like a, going to a party and then in, in this party in pop tent you can actually touch the product and then you can click on the QR code you can order right there on the spot as well so the same thing about amazon they now also have a, a stores uh, so in the case, you can go to stores to take a look at the product and also order online. So now this kind of hybrid uh, pop-up events make it more exp uh, uh, an experience uh, in terms of shopping is going to be a new trend. Mm. Well, speaking of Amazon, I know every time I walk into the UPS store, there's a long line of people returning Amazon products. And kind of going back to our overabundance of supplies, how does this, you, you buy it, you don't like it, you send it back because you hadn't seen it before. How does this return factor affect supply chains? And especially, you know, it disrupts, you know, shipping services and it's got to have a cost to somebody like Amazon. But what are our returns costing us and the companies that we return to? A lot. <laughs> so uh, for online shopping, I think that right now Amazon is actually uh, tightening up the rules. If you, the shoppers, keep on returning the product, they may need to cancel you because that for the shipping cost back is very expensive. So I think that for some of the products, the return rate is around 20 some percent. They don't make money. So that's why the Amazon need to increase the membership fee for primes because of free shipping. So I think that's, uh, uh, well, someone has to pay for the cost. So for, uh, that's why that now they try to find ways for the consumers to be a little bit more uh, conscious not to order multiple sizes of shoes and then only buy one and return the rest. So I think that this is something we also need to uh, be mindful because it's also bad for the environment as well. You bring up a lot of good points throughout this entire discussion. We've been speaking with Chris Tang. He's a professor at the UCLA Anderson School of Management and joined us to talk about the current supply chain and holiday shopping. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money. Thank you.
September 2024, the Park City Restaurant Association will host a premier culinary experience at the newest James Beard Endeavor called Platform by the James Beard Foundation. And they'll be spotlighting Park City's top chefs and award-winning spirit companies during this. Joining us this morning to talk about this more are Ginger Wicks with the Park City Area Restaurant Association and Chef Matthew Harris with Tupelo. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks Good morning. for having us. Can you just start <laughs> off by highlighting what exactly is taking place next September in New York City? <laughs> well, we're still, to be honest, ironing out all the details, but we have, um, we'll be taking over the platform venue by James Beard, which is located on Pier 57 in New York City, um, and we'll be hosting a week-long activation of a variety of different culinary events, what those specific events are going to be. Um, we're going to start actually working with the chefs tomorrow to kind of build out the week and, and how we can best represent Park City and the chefs that and the spirit companies that will be joining us. Well, give us a, a rundown of who um, James Beard is. We hear the name so often and it's automatically associated with high level culinary experiences, quality food. But who is James Beard and what does the association of his name especially mean to you as a, as a chef, Matthew? So James Beard is actually one of the founding fathers of American cuisine. Um, he's, definitely, he's definitely been one of the groundbreakers in bringing um, what you would consider American, American cuisine to spotlight. So he's very um, influential with a lot of his writings and publications. But what does it mean, okay, what does his name mean to you as a chef, though? Especially because it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing, I would assume, as it's well. It's definitely an honor to any time that you're ever associated with James Beard, whether it be an award or cooking at the Beard House or at the, at the new platform. It's definitely an honor. And so you get to uh, receive this honor. You have Tupelo, but you also have a few other um, places in town, Rhyme. And yes, we manage, we manage Rhyme Raw Bar at the top of the gondola in Deer Valley, as well as the um, restaurants Rhyme steak and seafood at um, St. Regis and uh, Brasserie at St. Regis. There we go. So. And then, so you're going to be on hand in New York City. Who else is going to be joining you? So we have um, Chef Zane Holmquist from the Steinerickson Lodge. We have Clement Gillis from the Chateau um, Bistro. And then we have Michael Showers from High West. He's going uh, as a chef. And then we're also bringing High West, the Spirits Division. And then we have Sarah and Rob Sartre from Alpine Distilling going. And we have Chef Carlos Segura from the Pendry Park City and Seth Adams from River Horse on Main. So this is a, this is a big deal. How do you go about, one, choosing who's going to go with <laughs> you to represent Park City in our amazing culinary scene? And then how do you prepare and plan a menu of this magnitude and importance? Well, from the selection side of it, we um, we applied for a Summit County Restaurant Tax Grant to help support the funding of this event in New York City. We did this event, a similar event, back in 2018. We formed a selection committee, which was represented by the Park City Chamber Bureau, the Utah Office of Tourism. We had someone from the Summit County Restaurant Tax Grant Committee and then a couple of our uh, this. Park City Area Restaurant Association board members that were not applying to be a part of this event, obviously. And that committee, uh, we sent out an RFP um, that had guidelines for what we were looking for. And then we had 16 applications come back. 
and then the committee met and went through those RFPs and selected the folks that I just mentioned. So you had a, an extensive uh, process in which to be able to select the chefs. You did yes. mention Utah Office of Tourism. Are they a, a co-sponsor of this event? They are not. We, of course, would hopefully, once we get everything ironed out, maybe would go back to them and, and see if that would be something they would consider. But we wanted to have a uh, really diverse group of people choosing the folks that were going to be representing Park City so that it was very fair and balanced. So back to this menu idea, and I'm going to ask you this, Matthew, how do you, I've worked with a number of chefs as we all have, and you all have very clear ideas of what you want to create and what your vision is for your food. How are you collaborating with all these different <laughs> brilliant creative minds to create a menu? So I think the biggest focus on this is to deliver the taste of what we do here in Park City. We have a lot of unique ingredients that come from the area. So I think the biggest focus is when we go in and we, we write these menus and collaborate, that we're focusing on all the great things that we do here and have here to offer. A lot of the restaurant experience also includes you know, the venue. It's, it's what you're, you know, you're, you're providing the food, but you're also providing the atmosphere in which they eat. Is that also a piece that you guys will be um, having input in? Or um, how, how are you going to not only have them taste Park City, but maybe feel Park City? Well, I think, you know, it's, like you said, we'll, we'll be bringing some of the ambiance from Park City as well. Um, it's bringing some of the aesthetics and, and as well as the ingredients and having them really feel what it is to be in a mountain community. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love is that you're bringing in a lot of the spirits that are, you know, mm -hmm. I guess brewed here, distilled here locally. And mm -hmm. as we all know, Utah is not typically associated as, as a place where you find high quality alcohols and liquor. Who's going to be coming with you to represent Utah's ability to create good drinks? Well, we'll have the spirit division from High West um, go. And then also, as I mentioned, we'll have Sarah and Rob Sargent from Alpine Distilling. So we'll be um, looking at ways to rep showcase them. Maybe we'll host tastings or um, spirit lessons. And then also working to incorporate whenever we can, serving those spirits with the meals that are going to be yeah, served as well. So it's uh, it's going to be a collaboration. And like I said, we're just starting to figure out what that collaboration looks like. But uh, certainly want to make sure that we get the most that we can. Who gets to then come and enjoy <laughs> these offerings that you put together with? And I assume, I guess, I, I'm having some assumptions in my head I should talk out loud about in that it's not just like, you know, you, you're putting up a pop-up or a stand and you're serving kind of the same dish out of it all week. It's, it's multiple types of events and things like that. So who, who, do, who are you inviting and who do you hope comes? Well, we, of course, will be inviting media uh, to help get the message out about all the amazing things that Park City has to offer and the amazing team that we'll be taking there. So... We'll be inviting um, folks like that, but the, uh, the James Beard House will help us figure out ticket prices for all of the events, and then you as a general public can purchase tickets to attend these events. Wow. So leading up to this next this event next September, do a lot of local restaurants like yourself and the other ones that are invited, are you utilizing this invitation as a marketing tool this winter to say, hey, we're going to be part of this James Beard event? 
Absolutely. We'll be using it as a marketing marketing tool for not only the restaurant, but the event itself, as well as you know, and people associated with the event. And then to continue the discussion about marketing, you know, the whole the whole point of doing this is really to introduce people to the Park City culinary experience. With this um, venue called Platform, has it been utilized in this way? Has Have other communities come and brought chefs from their town and that's what they do? Or how has it been used well, this is a, different? <clears throat> excuse me, this is a very new uh, venue for them. So no, something like this has not happened yet. A community or a resort town um, has not come and, and activated and kind of taken over for a week. So we'll be the first, uh, we're the first now that have signed on to do that. And whether somebody does it prior to us, uh, I don't know. But uh, no, it's a very, very new venue. How did Park City, how was Park City chosen as the basically the inaugural community for this platform well we're very lucky to work with Krista Graf with Graf PR and she has an amazing relationship with the James Beard house um, and takes a variety of chefs there independently with her business and so um, the she had conversations and and through that came this idea and this collaboration um, of what we what we're hoping to plan and 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 execute there and they're helping us along the way giving us advice so they're very very involved with the decision making um they had to approve the chefs that were selected before we announced them so they they are very involved in in all aspects of the event and then just to confirm you did receive a summit county restaurant tax grant for Correct. this yes. and uh this is next september so will there be more information out about this since people could travel to new york city and dine on the same food we so we eat here but it'd be a different it'd be a different fun fun time for sure absolutely as soon as we get the um confirmed schedule of events if you will we will absolutely be um publicizing that and letting everyone know how they can come and be involved and uh, join the fun as and i'm sure the individual restaurants will be marketing it through their means as well makes tons of sense well we've been just chatting with ginger wicks with the park city area restaurant association and matthew harris with tupelo thank you so much for joining us this morning thanks thank for you. having us you've been listening to kpcw's mountain money if you like mountain money let us know please leave a review